Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 23. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian Sr., Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show, is just about ready to come out. I'll give you more details in shows to come. Friendly Ghosts, Little Devils, Giants, and Rich Kids, The Art and Creations of Warren Kremer, is also about to come out, too. Crossing Fingers. I'm also flying to Los Angeles next week to do interviews with Johnny Harvey for his Ghost Empire documentary about Harvey Comics. I will let you know in a future podcast what happened and when this exciting documentary is due to come out. Our guest today has worked for Filmation, Ruby Spears, Hanna-Barbera, Marvel, working on such shows as G.I. Joe, Transformers, Sundar, Gem, Inhumanoids, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Tiny Toons, Tarzan and the Super 7, Webwoman, Dungeons and Dragons, Teen Wolf, Batman, Superman, Plastic Man, and more. Here he is, Buzz Dixon. So on the phone I have Buzz Dixon. How are you? I am fine. Thank you very much. And uh, just wanted to know a little bit more about you. You have a lengthy career in writing for animation and comic books. So I guess tell me how you got started in writing. What uh, were your interests growing up? Well, um, as I've mentioned to people, uh, when I was growing up, my uh, my family moved a lot because my father worked in women's clothing. Hmm. Let me explain that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my father was in the uh, uh, textile industry in the South. In particular, this in specialty was uh, he worked at factories that made women's apparel. And he worked as a, uh, what you would call a time studies engineer. The, the closest analogy that I could give would be a, an efficiency expert. And basically, uh, every time he would get a factory up and running smoothly, they'd say, well, the only person we don't need now is you. Yeah. <laughs> so he would, he would uh, lose a job. And as a result, we moved 20 times before I graduated high school. I wow. moved a lot. And uh, because of that, I gravitated towards science fiction fandom, because in science fiction fandom, you are never further away from your friends than your mailbox. Mm-hmm. You know, we were exchanging fanzines, uh, people would, uh, you know, be pen pals, writing letters to each other. So as I got interested in science fiction, I started wanting to write my own stories. At about, oh, age 12 or 13, I began writing and uh, submitting, and I didn't sell anything, of course, because, mm-hmm. you know, very few 12 or 13-year-old kids do so. But I was at least started at that age in, in writing and trying to write. And... When I was drafted in 1972, I ended up becoming a military journalist. Uh, when I got out of the Army in 78, mm-hmm. I applied for USC's film school. I was accepted, but the film school didn't start until October, and I was discharged like February. Mm. So my wife and I decided, well, we'll just go to Los Angeles. I'll try to find a job you know, at a studio as like a driver or mail clerk, something like that and just get my feet wet in the business before going to school in the fall. Mm-hmm. And to make a very long story short, I was dropping my resume off at every studio in town. I started at Universal and worked my way down. And I got all the way down to Filmation Studios and I basically walked in the door about five minutes after they said, you know, we need to find another staff writer and fast. Wow. <laughs> and, um, 
through uh, Arthur Nadell, very nice gentleman who was their live action producer. He uh, he, he basically took an interest in uh, you know well, I'll be frank, he was bored. He had nothing to do at the time. <laughs> they were on they were on hiatus between shows, and so there was nothing for him to, to actually work on. But Arthur talked with me, and uh, when he heard that I had you know been a military journalist and I had written some short stories, he asked to see the short stories. And then he gave me an opportunity to uh, kind of unofficially work up some story ideas for a, a series that they had developed, but they were having trouble coming up with stories. Mm-hmm. So I gave him the short stories, and he, uh, without my knowledge, I mean, it's okay, but I mean, he forwarded them to Lou Scheimer, the, you know, one of the founders of Filmation Studios. Mm-hmm. Lou was in Hawaii at the time on vacation, and, uh, you know, he sent it by FedEx. And in, in 1978, sending something by FedEx to Hawaii was a big deal. <laughs> so he, he sent my short stories to Lou. And then when Lou came back, he saw the premises that I had written on his desk. And he told Arthur, he says, I don't know which guy we should hire. Should we hire the guy who wrote the short stories or the guy who wrote the uh, uh, premises? Mm. And Arthur said, Lou, they're the same guy. And Lou said, get him. <laughs> so... I very quickly ended up on staff at Filmation, and I just figured, well, you know, I'm, I'm making a living now, actual living, writing, you know, animation. I'll, I'll put off going to college for a year, and then next year I'll go to college. Well, next year never came. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, b- backing up a little bit, I will ask you more about Filmation, though. You had... Re- mentioned something in your formative years that you were one of uh, Forrest J. Ackerman's monster kids, so what did did you do to earn that uh, title? (laughs) Well, basically, if you were were a fan of Famous Monsters magazine, and if you got involved in fandom through Famous Monsters, you know, being a horror movie fan, which is is pretty much how I started, um, that that would qualify you as a monster kid. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that Forey did, one of the one of the good things that Forey did was that he he basically told all of us who had these geeky interests, hey, it's okay to have the geeky interests. It's okay to be in contact with other people who share those geeky interests. It's perfectly all right. You're not a freak for being interested in monster movies. <laughs> and he provided through the pages of uh, famous monsters. Um, he would he would make it possible for people to find other people in the sense of he would say there's this fanzine out there there's that fanzine out there um the rivals to his magazine were even more fan oriented like castle of frankenstein and a couple of others and by that i mean they would they were much more active in providing links to fanzines and fan clubs and, and you know amateur filmmakers things of that nature and um, through Famous Monsters, I, I, you know, sent out for my first fanzines, jeez, uh, Photon, which was like the premier horror movie mag- fan uh, fanzine at the time, and, uh, you know, a couple of others. And, you know, the first writing that I had that was published was published. 
<laughs> you know, there'd be like two dials and a lever, and that was it. You know, and you'd fly to Mars on that. Right. <laughs> um, but um, uh, from there, you know, that's that got me interested in, in science fiction fandom in general, and that introduced me at least, you know, through letter writing and through, um, you know, letter columns and fanzines and whatnot. It introduced me to a lot of people, that many of whom I still know to this day. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, pretty much that got me started. Now, did you get anything published in Famous Monsters, even a letter or a photo or anything like that? I, I have been told that later on, towards the end of Forey's run, that I had a letter published in Famous Monsters. But I have not been able to find that particular issue, and uh, you know, because it it was towards the end, and by that point, Famous Monsters was you know pretty much becoming uh, just uh, just reprints and yeah. uh, press kits from uh, you know the major studios. Mm-hmm. So I had I had stopped following it on a regular basis, and and there was also a lag time. Typically, it would be like three or four issues before. If if you commented on issue fifty, it would be issue fifty four before your letter would show up. Right. So I I, I assume I had sent him a letter on something, and you know by the time it, it got published, I you know it had broken off my regular reading habit of famous monsters. Oh, okay. Now I have most of the issues. I'm missing thirty issues or so here and there, and most of them are the oh. earlier issues. But uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, I could take well, a look. you know you can, you I, can, you can, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I could take a look, that's all, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, if you're missing the earlier issues, you can, you can find them on the Internet Archive. They have a whole Warren Magazine mm. section that's, that's like, I won't say everything Warren published, but a huge hunk of what he published. So. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, most of them are the earliest, most expensive issues. I think oh, yeah. the earliest yeah. issue I have in my collection is, number five I think you know oh. so <laughs> yeah. I, I I was introduced to famous monsters at a summer camp and, mm-hmm. and this one kid God bless him what whoever he was I can't remember his name now he basically bought brought a foot locker filled with monster magazines and comic books so in this one summer I was introduced to um, Marvel Comics, I was introduced to Thunder Agents, and I was introduced to Famous Monsters. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, it was, it was a major, major, you know, impact in my life, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I bought two of the magazines from him, and it was number 30 and number 35, I remember very vividly. And uh, mm-hmm. I think I got back issues all the way to 25 at some point. I, I, you're right. I mean, it was it's, it was just far too expensive uh, to try to get a complete set. And, right. And now, as I say, you know, it's it's available online if you look. So okay, I'll have to take go. a look or send me a link or yeah. something. <laughs> um, I'll do that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, my story with Famous Monsters is I started reading Mad in 1974 at age <laughs> seven, and then I always saw things like creepy and Famous Monsters and stuff like that yeah. in the stands. But at that age, it was a little intimidating to me. I know there's kids yeah. out there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of flip through it and kind of go, oh, I don't know if I want to buy this. And also, yeah. it was like twice as much as Mad. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but I, I started yeah. buying it in '77 and never stopped. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it took a couple of years. I, that's I, all. <laughs> go I ahead. I think I read Mad when I was like 
National Lampoon later. Yeah, you know. I know. I, I would say National Lampoon was too knowing. National, and and you know, I I like National Lampoon. I I, uh, I sold a story to them, so I, I'm fond of them. But <laughs> National Lampoon was was too much of a wink and a nod. <laughs> uh, they were they were you know, hey, look how hip we are. We're making fun of this stuff. <laughs> and Mad was always. Look how ridiculous this is. Yeah. You know, it was never, hey, we're a bunch of hip guys for making fun of this. We're just, <laughs> hey, you know, look, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that makes a, that's a crucial difference between the, the styles of the two. Though I will say National Lampoon, their production values were astronomical. I mean, they yeah. did just look great all the time. Of course, you mentioned that. What, what article did you sell <laughs> to? I, I sold a parody of Stephen King called The Gerunding, <laughs> and it was it was basically a Stephen King novel condensed down to the first sentence in every chapter. <laughs> I kind of remember that. When did that publish? Oh, man, late 80s, early 90s, yeah. somewhere around yeah. there, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was... I was I, I I wish, but I didn't get the chance to be, you know, part of Matt Lamp at its height. Right. But I, I at least was part of Matt Lamp, so I yes. can make that claim. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, did you ever contribute anything to Matt since we were talking about that? Um, no, I didn't. I, I think maybe in my lifetime I sent one or two things to him, and, and uh, you know, they just didn't gel. I knew enough about how the magazine was put together and the pitching process to understand that if you didn't have well-established chops as a comedy writer, um, you weren't likely to get much traction there. And uh, if if you were an artist, you had a better shot because you know they could look and see, well, is this is it well drawn and is it funny? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, they might be willing to take a chance on you. <laughs> but if you're a writer pitching stuff to them. Um, they very, very rarely took outside. 
Well, that's true. A lot of their writers also wrote for TV, so, yeah. 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 Well, no, but, I mean, you look at the early issues of Mad Magazine, I mean, they had, like, Steve Allen, they had, they had really, they had, they had uh, first-class writers, people who were recognizable, Uh, Ernie Kovacs, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, they had people who were legit writers, were, were, were legit humorous people, knew their names, and so they would take material from them. But, you know, after a while, they found out that, you know, what we're doing, what we're generating internally is, uh, you know, making just as much of an impact as, you know, what we get from the celebrities. So, you know, why jump through hoops to get celebrities when we can just generate our own stuff? Right. <laughs> Um, so moving back to Filmation, so you worked for a lot of animation studios, so I guess let's talk a little bit about each one. So when you went okay. to Filmation, uh, that was like late 70s, I think your first show was yeah. Mighty Mouse uh, and Heckle and Jekyll? No, actually there was oh. something, there were, there were a couple of things before Mighty Mouse. The very the very first thing I worked on uh-huh. never got made because oh. uh, the, the show that I did the pitches they had a show called Starlight and Sunbright, or some variant of that. Mm. Uh, and, and the premise was that uh, there were these twin girls who had superpowers, but one only had superpowers during the day, and the other had superpowers at night. Mm. And, uh, you know, I came in, they said, well, they're identical twins. And I said, uh, well, you've got one identical twin here with dark hair and another identical twin. Mm-hmm. They're not identical twins. They're fraternal twins. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, had to, I had to explain basic genetics to them. <laughs> but uh, so they said, okay, all right, fine, but they're still twins. They can be fraternal twins. So, I, you know, we're trying to come up with ideas for the show. And I almost got sex on Saturday morning because I, I was pitching an idea. <laughs> I, was, I was pitching an idea where they're trying to capture a unicorn. And one girl couldn't get anywhere close to the unicorn, but the other one caught it quite easily. Hmm. So, you know, if you know the myth of the unicorn, only a virgin can capture a, a unicorn. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the show, they, they could never get enough story ideas, and they just, they just finally canceled, uh, you know, before it even went into full production. And this was part of a series that was called Tarzan and the Super Seven because that they had I remember, been doing yeah. Yeah. yeah they had been doing the Tarzan show and they trimmed them down from like twenty two minutes to seventeen minutes and then they expanded the show they had a live action serial that they were doing Jason of Star Command and mm-hmm. they had um, other segments that we were doing they were there was like Manta and Moray Web Woman. Um, there was another group of, uh, I, you, I'm going to call them superheroes, but they were really mythical heroes like Aladdin and uh, Sinbad and characters like that. And one of them, uh, there was a generic samurai character in there as well, Super Samurai. Yeah. And that was that was the first giant robot cartoon I wrote because mm. I, I, I threw him into combat against a giant robot. I gave the art department all of these Japanese giant robot uh, you know <laughs> designs and I said this is this is it's got to look like something like this and it came out looking like a, a stove with you know accordion arm and legs so <laughs> you know it did not come out anywhere near where I had hoped 
Now, now you mentioned Web Woman. You, uh, did you write any of those? Uh, I think uh, I wrote a couple of those. Okay. okay. Um, Web Woman and uh, let's see, I wrote Web Woman. There was another one called Super Stretch and Micro Woman. Okay. There was Manta and Moray. And Web Woman, we ended up uh, running afoul of Marvel. They found yeah. out about the show before it aired. And originally, she had this uh, tight fitting but believable costume. Basically, she looked like Black Widow, okay? Mm -hmm. the, the original Black Widow with the kind of jumpsuit, you know, you know, utility belt and pockets. And so she looked kind of like that, and Marvel threatened to make a big stink about it if we didn't change the design because it was too close, yada, yada. So they changed it to a ridiculous leotard outfit. Yeah. Um, and then with Super Stretch and Micro Woman and Manta and Moray, we ended up being sued simultaneously by both <laughs> DC and Marvel because... Uh, you know, DC said, well, you're ripping off uh, Elongated Man, The Atom, and uh, Aquaman. <laughs> and Marvel said, well, you're ripping off uh, Mr. Fantastic, uh, <laughs> uh, Ant-Man, and uh, Namor. And I, I told Lou, I said, Lou, just have the two studios decide who we're ripping off and, and let them fight it out we're ripping off and then we'll deal with the survivor you know <laughs> and instead Lou managed you know his lawyer managed to lose suits to both companies oh, so we were, we were sued for ripping off both companies wow because you'd think yeah. you know it's like well Mr. Fantastic and Plastic Man are very similar uh, you guys yeah. figured out you know or whatever you know? I, I would have yeah I mean that, that would have been my approach but they managed to lose uh, to lose this. And, and their lawyer Drop the ball in, I mean, this is a colossal mistake. <laughs> Another show that I did around the same time as uh, Mighty Mouse, it might have been just before, um, was a show called uh, uh, The Fabulous Funnies, which was neither, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one, though. But then I've read yeah. the Filmation yeah. book that came yeah. out. So, so, <laughs> so um, The Fabulous Funnies, basically, they got these old... Um, comic comic strips and I think like the newest ones that they had were like Broomhilda and uh, we thought Tumbleweeds yeah. I mean the rest were like Aliyub, Nancy and Sluggo, the captain and the kids mm -hmm. and it's like you know most of this stuff is ancient I mean most modern kids aren't following these strips these are strips that people then in their 50s and 60s were following not mm -hmm. <laughs> you know you didn't have young audiences but they got the rights to them, and apparently they went over to Tom Ryan, the you know Filmation's lawyer, contacted Tom Ryan and said, we'd like to do uh, a Tumbleweeds show. Mm -hmm. And Tom Ryan said, okay, we'll, we'll write up a sample script and do a storyboard and send it to me, and if I like it, I'll give you permission. <laughs> and the lawyer said, he says it's okay. Nah. So <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, we wrote four scripts in fact I wrote four scripts and we actually animated two and the first one aired on the premiere date of the show yeah and the next Monday we get a phone call from Ryan's lawyer saying uh, well he, he liked the show a lot but he was wondering why you guys never ever offered him a contract mm -hmm. <laughs> and so boom it got yanked yeah. uh, we, it was it was taken out
lot of uh, the show, and uh, you can find it if you look for it on uh, on YouTube. Somebody managed to save a VHS copy, but um, yeah, I mean that was typical of the way they did business. <laughs> it was uh, it was very slapdash and uh, you know seat of the pants. So needless to say, they never reran that episode either, right? <laughs> no, they didn't. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think I remember seeing it because I used to watch all that stuff and, you yeah. know, um, kind of wondered before I knew the story, uh, what happened to Tumbleweeds? I thought that was supposed to be yeah. on here. Yeah. Um, but um, did you participate in that uh, Lou Scheimer filmation book? That um, I'm, I'm, qu- I'm quoted in it, but I didn't participate oh. in it actively. I think, I think Andy and I probably had a few conversations, okay. but he never sat down and you know, formally ask me anything. Okay, because I think that's where I found out that story, the Tumbleweed yeah. story. Yeah, and that's a good book, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I, anybody who's interested in, in TV animation of that era is well advised to get it. Now, I don't remember the other thing you're talking about with the the fraternal twins. <laughs> um, was that well, mentioned that never in the got book? made. That, they, 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 they couldn't get any story ideas, and so they, they yanked it out of production. Right. And as I said, the show was called Tarzan and the Super Seven, and you could there was no way to add it up in any way and come out with seven. <laughs> because if you said, well, it's the number of segments, we don't have seven segments. Right. Well, okay, it's the number of people involved. Well, we got a lot more than seven people involved. You know, I mean, it, and, and I asked Lou about it, and Lou said, Forget about it. It just sounds good. We'll, we'll just run with it. So you know. <laughs> well, he was they, r- he was yeah, right. Well, I never you know, checked. I figured. Yeah, you know. I just figured. Oh, there's probably seven people on it with Tarzan. I didn't even think about it. You know. I was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, but, but attention to detail. <laughs> but, you know, uh, got him in trouble with. with uh, Ryan, you know, <laughs> right? But I was—I keep asking on the fraternal twins one. The, the was that yeah. even mentioned in that book? I don't even remember it. I think you're the first one to talk Man, about. It. I don't. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. Okay. I've got it downstairs, but my my wife is cooking up a storm, and I'm not going to go down. Okay, there. that's fine. It's not that. It's not that big a deal. I'm nitpicking on something silly, but I know they, uh, like Andy talks about the. Uh, well, they produced a pilot, but uh, the Marx Brothers cartoon. Yeah, you yeah, know, which Marx is Brothers very thing. bizarre. You know. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, that is, I'm, I'm going to say this, and it sounds like I'm being critical, and I'm not. I'm just puzzled. <laughs> How can you go so far afield of the Marx Brothers? Because you think, well, well, everybody knows who Harpo, Chico, and Groucho are. Mm-hmm. And just build off of that. And what they have, you're looking at it and you're going, this has nothing to do with the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it was just um, a generic comedy. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of funny because Filmation did a lot better later on where they were doing stuff but i guess they got permission stuff like when they did star trek and uh even they, gilligan's island and things like that yeah. you know it's like <laughs> well the, the thing about about lou and and this is a big credit to him there's there's two huge credits you got to check off by his name the first credit is that as as inexpensive and as tightly as he ran that you know tight budget on on his shows he kept for as long as he possibly could, all the animation in the States. Yes. And he did it union. So he, he hired them, he paid union rates, and he did it in the U.S. And the other thing is, he recognized that, you know, these shows had to be done on a shoestring, and he needed writers who could visual, 
visualize a story in their head and could tell an interesting story without calling for a lot of animation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're working at Filmation, they would give you this big, thick notebook of um, uh, stock shots. Mm. And they'd say, when you're, when you're writing an episode of Fat Albert or Tarzan, go through here and call out specific stock shots oh, wow. so that, you know, we can, we can stretch out the animation. And, I mean, there's, like, basic stuff. It's like Tarzan running through the jungle or something like right. that. And you'd go, okay, uh, you know, Tarzan says this, and then, you know, you've seen number so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they'd stick Tarzan running through the jungle up. Now, did you, as a scriptwriter, did you actually storyboard as well? Because I know, like at other studios, like to Patty Freeling and Hanna Barbera, they storyboarded it out. So, how did you do your scripts? I I was completely and totally a writer. I okay. I I don't think I ever drew anything other than just like a basic outline to show the storyboard artist or the um, uh, you know the the uh, designer. Here's here's the general idea of what I'm thinking about, okay. and in fact, I on on more than one occasion I would draw something, and the artist would look at it and say, "Buzz, don't do that again. Just let us try to figure <laughs> it." <out." You> know? <laughs> I mean, people have asked me if I'm a cartoonist, and I I say to the degree that I can put lines on a piece of paper and you can look at it and correctly guess what I'm drawing, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. But I'm not. I am. I am. Oh, I'm nowhere near the quality level that you need to be for this right. job. No. Well, I always have to ask that when I interview people who work in animation, because yeah. especially back then, in those days, 70s and 80s, it's like, yeah, everybody storyboarded things. Few people did the scripts like you're talking about. Well, uh, actually, that's, they, they, it was the other way around, to be honest with you, because what had happened was that prior to the 1950s, mm-hmm. um, prior to Hanna-Barbera, um, you know, finding a niche for themselves on television. Uh, even animated features were done storyboard style. They would have story right. meetings and they'd sit around and they'd hash something out and somebody might jot down some notes, but then uh, a storyboard artist would actually draw it out and mm-hmm. they would, you know, uh, they would expand or contract sequences and move them around. They were like drawn on cards and, and pinned up on a board or uh, at, at Disney. They, oh, funny story for Disney. I'll tell you in just a second. At Disney, they had these huge pieces of artboard, and they would paste the um, each sequence that they were doing for feature films on the artboard. Mm-hmm. And when they were doing Bambi, they had an artist, because they, they would keep the artboards in their conference room. And when they were doing Bambi, there was an artist working for them who was, was a little guy, short person. And he used to sneak in the artboard, in, into the conference room and he'd crawl behind the artboards because these were huge pieces of, of you know material he'd crawl behind them and take a nap and he's <laughs> back there napping one day and Disney comes in with some investors and they're talking about Bambi and he's hiding behind the Bambi storyboards and Disney is flipping through these storyboards one by one and this guy is just crouching back there waiting for you know waiting for the last one to fall but luckily the last one is the end of the story so they don't have to flip it over and so he survived he, he wasn't exposed but uh, uh, <laughs> wow <laughs> but no what happened was, was that everything had been done on storyboard up to that point and then when Hanna-Barbera got into television and particularly network 
Television in the early 60s. In particular, the Flintstones. Yeah. Um, they realized we we do not have the time to develop these things the old-fashioned way. We need people who know how to write scripts, mm. to write the script, and then we'll hand them the storyboard artist and tell the storyboard artist to draw what has been, you mm. know, written. And at that point, they started recruiting uh, uh, full-time writers. Mm-hmm. They they had used writers in the past to write cartoons, but again, it was basically the writer would come in with the storyboard artist, hash the idea out, and he might write up a synopsis and hand it over to the storyboard artist. But, uh, you know, the, the, the formal script writing was not done the way it is, is was done, you know, after that. Right. Okay. And uh, Flintstones and Jetsons pretty much forced, um, you know, Hanna-Barbera to start relying, relying on traditional screenwriting methods. Yeah. And it stayed like that up until, uh, you know, the Ren and Stimpy era. And then as um, this new generation of artists uh, turned creators were being introduced, the you know, it flipped in the opposite direction. Oh, there, okay. there was no work for the writers, and it was all storyboarded. Mm. And now you've got kind of this, uh, you know, it, it depends on the particular show and the particular sensibilities of the uh, people working on it. Mm. So, <clears throat> going back to filmation, um, did you just stay there exclusively, or you? you because it shows you've done some Ruby Spears shows and even a yeah. Hanna Barbera and Marvel productions later on. So I don't know. Was it like I know other people I've interviewed? They they kind of would work at things seasonally, so they could work at other studios at the same time. So, well, I was I was on staff. Um, for about a year and a half. Okay. And they kept me through the first seasonal hiatus. Mm-hmm. And then after the second season I worked for them, uh, they went on hiatus and they, they said, uh, you know, we gotta turn you loose. Uh, you're free to work anywhere else. And in fact, Lou actually made a phone call for me. I mean, thank you, Lou, to uh, Ruby Spears and said, you know, you ought to talk to this guy, he's, he's pretty good. And so I went over to Ruby Spears at that point, and uh, they were doing a show called Mighty Man and Yuck, which was a subset <laughs> of uh, Plastic Man. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I sold a, a script or two there, and they said, well, would you like to come on board? I think I think the next thing I did for them was, well, I hope I'm not getting this out of sequence. I either did Dingbat in the Creeps after Mighty Man and Yuck, or I did it before. I may be getting the sequence picked up. But, well, you know what's funny? Yeah. I, I'll interrupt a little bit. Is I'm, I looked at your credits on IMDb. Neither of yeah. those shows are listed, and it's like, wow, you know, it's like, I mean, I they used to be, watch those shows, but they, they, yeah, they might be listed under. I mean, they might be under another show because they, like all of them are was part of the plastic. Show. Well, that's true. Okay, that's true. And, okay, and they, they did list Plastic Man, so I didn't. I was just assuming Plastic Man. I wasn't thinking about the individual segments yeah, with it. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, and um, anyway, so they, the, you know, uh, Joe Ruby, uh, you know, gave me a staff position there, and then uh, uh, Lou called me back, and and I said, well, you know, I'll go back, Lou, but. Um, I'm, I'm earning X now. Can you can you meet it or beat it? And he says I can't pay you that. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was like it was like twice as much as he normally paid. So, 
Um, I didn't work for Filmation again until uh, many, many years later when I did, I think, a single Brave Star for them. Okay. And, and that was, that was, that, and I think I did a development on a show that went nowhere. And uh, that was that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because, and, you know, now on my list here, it looks like a lot of things. I mean, I could just run down the list, and you could say something about it. Uh, there, okay. Ruby, Ruby Spears, Superman. What did you do on? I mean, all of this is writing, I guess, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, Superman. They got the rights to do Superman, and we. Uh, Steve Gerber was the story editor on it, and I think I did at least two, maybe three. Okay. Uh, that was a fun show because I mean I I grew up as a kid I I loved the Superman uh, TV show with George Reeves so it was great to have a chance to actually write Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what else have we got? Well, on the Superman, let me ask this: Were there something like that? Were there a lot of restrictions on it from DC or anything? Or you had pretty much not, pretty... not really. I mean, oh, it was okay. it's basically you know everybody knows what Superman is. Yeah, you know, it's it's Superman. It's Lois Lane. It's uh, Jimmy Olsen, Perry White, uh, you know, you've got uh, Lex Luthor and uh, Brainiac showing up to cause problems every now and mm-hmm. then. And, uh, you know, it, the thing about a Superman story is that every Superman story is basically the same. The antagonist figures out some way of neutralizing Superman's powers, either by, <laughs> by robbing, no, seriously, he either figures out how to rob Superman of his powers or to create a situation where Superman cannot use his powers, because if he does, <laughs> something bad will happen. And then the moment Superman figures out a workaround to it, boom, story's over, because, you know, he's Superman. It's, right. It just ends <laughs> that quick. But, I mean, that's fine. That's the, that's the, the appeal of Superman. Yeah. I remember as a kid, I, uh, one of my, I, I love red kryptonite stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of my favorite red kryptonite stories was he gets exposed to red kryptonite and and he grows a beard, and he goes on television, and he tells all the men in Metropolis, hey, I've, I've been exposed to red kryptonite, I've grown a beard, I've got to ask you guys, everybody grow a beard tonight so that I can hide my secret identity. And everybody, all the men in Metropolis, grow a full beard overnight. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff, you know. Uh, um, well, also, you know, I asked you about restrictions from DC. How about, uh, did you have any restrictions from the network? Since I know, like, the Filmation Superman was accused of being too violent and stuff. And then, you know, Hanna-Barbera had super friends and stuff like that. I don't know. Was there any direction we, uh, that way? Or you were just allowed to do what you did? We did a show called Thundar the Barbarian, mm-hmm. which was... Uh, Steve Gerber was one of the creative inputs into it. I, I, I can't remember if he did it, if he created the basic idea entirely by himself, but I mean, he certainly contributed a huge amount to it. And uh, Thunder the Barbarian is basically a futuristic fantasy about a, you know, barbarian with a sun sword in, in right. the future, and he travels with Ookla the Mock and Ariel the Wizardess, and they, uh, they have these adventures. And we had Jack Kirby, you know, designing the show for us. Mm-hmm. You know, talk about just great experiences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, we would put as much action as we could into it, and we figured out a workaround to the the nonviolence clause that the, the network would have. Mm-hmm. And that was that as long as 
because it was a non-living magical thing. You could do whatever you wanted to with it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, you send an you send an army of human underlings to fight Thundar. There's Thundar is limited to what he can do. You send an army of mud monsters to fight Thundar. Thundar can go berserk. Wow. So we would we would do stuff like this. We would we would do shows where you know he's he's fighting against robots or mud monsters or energy beings that sort of thing. Hmm. And when the show got picked up, um, the network said, uh, you know this it, this show has been entirely too violent. We're gonna we're gonna trim down the violence in the next season. <laughs> and Joe said uh, Joe Ruby said, well, what are we gonna do? Because I mean you know if they trim the violence out, that goes there goes the appeal of the show and I said well the only thing we can do is to write a season opener that is so incredibly violent that even after they get through censoring it there's a lot of stuff left in it and that way in the future when we write something and they, they say you can't do it we say well hey you let us do it in the season opener <laughs> and uh, Joe said well who are we going to get to write that and at that point every eye in the room turned towards me <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote this thing called Wizard War which is just like I, I deliberately packed this thing with as much action as I could do. <coughs> Steve Gerber, mm-hmm. Steve Gerber read it and and told people that I was the only person he knew who could write a forty-five page fight scene without repeating himself once. <laughs> and I just, I mean, I was like dropping robots into ducted fan blades, and parts were flying off in all directions. And I mean, it was. It was so violent, Joe Ruby looked at it and turned green and said, my God, we can't send this to the network. So he trimmed it down a little bit. <laughs> and it went to the network, and the network just said, my God, why are you dying? This is great. And so they whacked out a lot of stuff, but by the time they finished whacking out stuff, we still had a traditional Thundar level of action and adventure in it. <laughs> so we, we, we saved the show that season by keeping it on the air. But the, the follow-up to it is, for the next 17 years, I was the official bad example at ABC. <laughs> because whenever they would bring in uh, a new person to be a censor, they would hand them that script and say, if you can't find 50 things wrong with this, you're not getting the job. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So you you mentioned Steve Gerber a number of times yeah. here. Um, you worked with him as Superman. You said Thunder, and then I know in the comic book Destroyer Duck you worked uh, yeah. with him. So it, did you was that it, or did you work with him in other places? As oh, well? I worked with him on lots of projects. Steve uh, Steve was a dear friend, one of the best oh, okay. friends I ever had, and um, I met him at Ruby Spears. We we uh, we actually worked first together on a project at Ruby Spears that we called internally the Marvel Dog and Superhero Show (laughs) because um, Joe Ruby had gotten this is crazy, he got the the rights to the characters in the Avengers but he didn't get the rights to the name Avengers Mm. I mean so you know figure that one out but anyway so we had Captain America, we had Namor we had uh, uh, Scarlet Witch and Vision and uh, uh, I forget the other characters we had but we were we were excited I mean we were pumped up I mean for heaven's sakes we got the Avengers we could, we could do really great stuff with this and Joe said in a 
really great action adventure show, and we're going to give them all a funny dog. And <laughs> go, what? And he said, yeah, they're all going to have a funny dog. Captain America will have a funny dog. Namor will have a funny dog. Uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch will have And we were going, trying to say to him, Joe, no, 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 don't do that. Don't muck it up with funny dogs. Just do the Marvel superheroes. But he insisted, and his name was on the studio, so we ended up doing this thing that um, the format Steve came up with was a great idea because Steve's idea was it was, it was going to be an hour-long show, mm-hmm. but there would be like six segments, and there, the segments put together would tell an overall arc, story arc, but each individual segment would be standalone. It would be complete into itself. Mm-hmm. And so this way, if you wanted to go into uh, syndication and do just like all of the Captain America segments, you could do all the Captain America segments because you didn't need the other segments for the Captain America segment to, to tell a complete story. Mm-hmm. Or conversely, if you wanted to do, you know, the way we put it together, you could show them all in, uh, in proper order. Hmm. But um, we that didn't fly. Um, in the end, um, uh, Freddie Silverman, who was he was the guy they were pitching it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe took Steve with him to pitch the show to Freddie Silverman, <laughs> and uh, you know, Steve was um, you know a little wary about this. And they go in and. You know, Joe's talking about the show and all what they're going to do in it, and he says, and Steve here worked on on Marvel Comics, so he'll explain the characters to you. (laughs) So Steve figures, well, I better start with the simplest and easiest one to explain and work my way up. And uh, he said, okay, Captain America is Steve Rogers, and he's a World War II uh, soldier but um, he, he's got the super serum, but he was frozen and he was thawed out in the contemporary world. So he is a man out of time. The world he is in is not the world that he was familiar with. Mm. And uh, Silverman looked at him and said, you know, we ain't doing Ibsen here. <laughs> 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 and uh, so Steve said, right, okay, Captain America has a shield and he throws it. And that was the level of complexity that uh, Silverman wanted. So, you know, um, <laughs> that show didn't take off, but we did other things together. And, and at the time we were doing this, Steve was in the process of uh, suing Marvel mm-hmm. to try to regain control of uh, Howard the Duck. Right. And uh, to fund that, he started destroyer duck comics which was one of the very first um uh independent comics that was done in the united states mm-hmm. and um he had you know i mean jack kirby you know had no love for marvel so he was more than willing to help by drawing pages for steve you know <laughs> at a, uh, so he was drawing the book originally mm-hmm. and the very first work that i did in comics was um you know steve said and I'm running a little behind schedule. Could you write a two-page fight scene for me that we can plug in just to give Jack something to do while I'm finishing up the rest of the script? And he says, mm-hmm. all you, all you got to do is just have a two-page fight and it, it have it end so that this character wins and can demand information from the guy he's beaten. <laughs> and um, so my very first uh, thing that I did was a two-page fight. 
fight scene in Destroyer Duck, and it was drawn by Jack Kirby. And I tell people, you know, I started my comics career with Jack Kirby, and it's been downhill ever since. And, well, you could say that about animation. I started at Filmation and, well, no, maybe not. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, well, before I go more into comic books, a um, couple other shows that you did uh, at Ruby Spears. Well, first of all, I was going to ask, uh, how, how did Ruby Spears compare, other than pay, uh, to Filmation? Was it a little more freeing or flexible or... <laughs> Well, it's interesting because it was a certain overlap of personnel. Uh, at Filmation, the, the saying around the office was, Filmation hired two kinds of people, those on their way in and those on their way out. <laughs> and by, the, by that, it meant they got people who were just starting. It was, it was literally their first gig, yeah. and they were, they were, you know, they were making their bones as it was at, at Filmation. Um, Sam Simon, one of the co-creators of The Simpsons, was, I co-wrote Mickey M- Mighty Mouse with me. It's not mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse, Mighty Mouse with me <laughs> in Filmation. He was he was hired about the same time I was hired, and he was doing um, you know comedy stuff while I was doing adventure stuff, and mm-hmm. we ended up working on Mighty Mouse together. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Um, uh, we also had a guy named Bill Danch, and you know I like Bill Danch a lot. But Bill was like this old radio writer, and he was um, uh, he was he, you know he was reduced down to uh, you know writing stuff for Filmation. Uh, <laughs> you know he was at the end of his career. <laughs> so um, a lot of people that I met at Filmation, guys like Tom Mitten and. Uh, uh, John Dorman and uh, Eddie Fitzgerald, they ended up either working at Ruby Spears or working at other studios because, you know, other studios paid better. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, there was there was that migration out. We didn't have as many burned out cases as they had at Filmation. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, that sounds cruel. I realize even as I was saying it, because it's not that they were burned out cases, but I mean, Lou would have, you know, empathy for people who had done a lot of work in their careers and now they were in the, the sunset of it. And they yeah. they didn't have the same chops that they had 20, 30 years ago, but, you know, they still need to eat. They still were entitled to their dignity. And, right. you know, Lou gave them, Lou gave them an opportunity. But yeah. Yeah. the stuff they were doing didn't have the punch and the edge that, the younger guys were doing and the younger guys were you know being guys and gals were being drawn away by other studios that could pay better yeah um one more ruby sphere show so this is the one is uh okay i recently worked on a book about the alvin show uh mm-hmm. and it's coming out in february or march and uh i talk a little bit about Alvin and the Chipmunks and later stuff, mm-hmm. but not much yeah. because it's really about yeah. the '60s show. So you worked on Alvin and the Chipmunks, and right. I've not heard great stuff about that uh, experience what? from different people. So I was just wondering what your take was on that. My my take was it was a lot of fun. Okay. Uh, Ross Bagdasarian Jr. Uh, was a, a good person to work with. He and his wife were good people to work with. Mm. Uh, they were interested 
making the show fun, mm-hmm. and um, I, I never had any problems with them. Um, I, I never had any problems, in fact, with, with Joe or the networks on it, because it was mm-hmm. just, from my point of view, uh, you know, we I'd pitch a couple of ideas, they'd say, yeah, do that one, and I'd, I'd go and do it, and, uh, you know, they'd like it, and then I'd go on to something else. Okay. So that was a fun show. I had I had one of the... Uh, it, it was a funny quote Hollywood moment unquote. Um, I was I was standing on a street corner one time. Um, I think uh, I was ha- I was having car trouble at the time, so I was taking the bus. So I'm, I'm at the street corner waiting for a bus, and uh, uh, Ross and Janet Bagdasarian are driving by in their car, and they roll the window. They don't even stop. They roll the window down and yell out. Hey, we got picked up for another season. Do you want to work on the show? And I said, Yeah, sure. And then they said, Great. And they kept driving on. Didn't even slow down. <laughs> so that's how you got hired for one more year. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Um, <clears throat> now, excuse me, I'm keep coughing. Uh, Ruby Spheres, where were they located? I, I've never really interviewed Everywhere. anybody. Everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, I, I started, they were. <laughs> Gosh, I, they were off Lancashire Boulevard somewhere. I can't remember exactly where. And uh-huh. it was uh, the little industrial building, you know, warehouse type thing. I mean, the kind of the kind of place that uh, was probably like a, um, you know, a, a, a men's clothing outlet before they took it over, and then became a plumbing supply store afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's just a generic building that they subdivided. Um, then after that we went to what we call the fortress because uh, this, this is interesting uh, Bank of America anticipated what their computing needs were going to be in the early 70s and they figured well we're going to need X amount of space to, to hold a computer and the computer has to be physically secure so they built in uh, Sunland which is part of Los Angeles mm-hmm. they built this literal fortress. Mm. I mean, it, it had like a wall around it with barbed wire on the top. It actually had a gun turret in the back <laughs> so that armed guards could defend it if somebody tried to raid it. Um, most of it was like in this steel-reinforced vault. Mm. The, there were some front offices that were normal, but you know the rest of the building was this giant steel-reinforced vault because they were anticipating it being packed Mm-hmm. With with computers, mm-hmm. and in the five years it took to build the buildings, the computer that they needed to house all the information shrank down to the size of a desk. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so when you know Ken uh, Ken Spears said, "Yeah, when we went in to look at it, we go into this big, huge vault, and there's like one person sitting at a computer the size of a desk, and that was it. That was running the whole operation." So That's funny. they didn't need the building, and we acquired it. Uh, we, I mean, Ruby Spears acquired it, yeah. and we stayed there for a season or two, and uh, then for whatever reason they decided to move to um, what we called the submarine. Hmm. And we called it the submarine. This one was on uh, Coanga Boulevard. It was the first one on Coanga Boulevard. And it was a dental office before they took it over, but there were no windows in it, literally hmm. no windows in this building at all. There were, there were like two thin strips in Joe's office 
they were just, you know, kind of let a little bit of light in. That was the only outside light you got. Everything else was, you know, it was, it was literally no windows. Wow. And so it was like literally being inside a submarine, and the, the offices they had were subdivided, so you would have to share, there would be a glass partition between you and the person on the other side. So, I mean, you had, you had, you had a claustrophobic lack of privacy, if you can, if you if you follow what I'm saying. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it it eventually started driving everybody nuts, uh, especially the the bathrooms, because the bathrooms some sadist put this pinstripe wallpaper in there that would have <laughs> like these really jarring colors that didn't go together, like they put red and blue right beside each other. And and my theory was that they did that to, to force people out of the bathroom so they wouldn't waste time. But anyway, um, they they built this thing and uh, they they moved into this thing and we lasted a season there and uh, everybody just it, the the company was growing and at the same time everybody was quickly getting sick of it. <laughs> so we moved from that one to a two door style building. Uh, that had like I think three at least three floors maybe four floors mm-hmm. and uh, they they put the storyboard department John Dorman's storyboard department was was buried down the bottom level because they wanted him as far away from you know <laughs> everybody else as they could get him and then the writers and the uh, executives were up on the top floor and somewhere in between they had uh, the bulk of the artists yeah Wow, so I, I never knew that, but I like I said, I don't think I've ever interviewed anybody that worked at Ruby Spears. So, you know, or if they did, well, I, you know, I said, uh, you know, I've heard horror stories about Alvin. You've said something different, so I guess that's a good thing. Uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't on the art side. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's true. The other know, people for, I've interviewed are on the art side, not the writing side. So maybe they... I, I can <laughs> I can see how um, the Bagdasarians. In, with their dedication to preserving the character, yeah. I can see how they would be very, very demanding regarding art. Yeah. Whereas with a script, you know, if they say, mm, that line doesn't sound right, well, what would you like him to say? Well, can he say this? Sure. And, okay. you know, it's fixed. Got it. You okay. Know, that's, that makes sense. You know, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. So you talked about Ruby Spears. So uh, did you go to Hanna Barbera next, or is that just like. Uh, I. I had a couple of swings by Hanna Barbera. Okay, okay. Okay, they, when I was working at Filmation, the two story editors I worked with were uh, a couple of guys named Chuck Menville and uh, Len Jansen. Yep. And uh, uh, they did a lot of scripts they, together. <laughs> they did a lot of stuff together. Yeah, they 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 actually did um, an Oscar nominated short film called Vicious Cycles, where it was done in what was called pixelation style, which is where you you animate full-size objects or people frame by frame, and it looks like they're they're moving even when they're not. And so they would position themselves, pose like they were riding on motorcycles, even though they didn't have motorcycles, and they'd come roaring over, you know, hills and around curves and stuff like that. Yeah, I've seen, Um, I've seen their stuff, like they did Sergeant Swell, and there's another one that they did, it's very similar to that, so, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) very silly stuff, Uh, but yes. Yeah, it was, it was, but I mean, it got them, it got them work, and they, you know, um, so they ended up being, um, 
story editors over at uh, uh, Hanna-Barbera, and uh, for some reason, Hanna-Barbera split them up. They, they weren't working <laughs> together, and, you know. Um, well, I can understand why, because, you know, Joe and Ken had started at Hanna-Barbera, and they created Scooby-Doo, and, and Joe Barbera felt, you know, threatened by them. So I can understand fully that Joe Barbera wouldn't want a, uh, you know, another uh, creative team running around. Yeah, loose. Sense, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, the uh, Hanna-Barbera at the time... It had the the best way to describe it. If you could imagine a um, two like college buildings, big nineteen sixty style college buildings with these concrete lattices on the outside, and to get into the building, you would have to go into a parking lot, walk all the way to the back, and come down this courtyard between the two buildings to the front, mm-hmm. but you couldn't enter directly off the street. You had to come through the parking lot, hmm. through the courtyard, all the way to the front of the building. You would be admitted into the front of the building. They would make sure that you had business there, and then they would give you permission to see whoever you had to see. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, Chuck Mendel's office was all the way in the back of the building. <laughs> so that meant, if I if I was worth, when I was working with him on this show, uh, uh, I was writing an episode for him of a show called The New Schmoo. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would park, I'd walk all the way to the front, <laughs> get my things, walk all the way back to him, have the meeting, walk all the way to the front inside the building again, and then come out and walk all the way down the courtyard to, <laughs> you know, leave the building. And about two or three times after doing this, I just got fed up, and I said, you know, I don't want to waste my time walking all the way down, and then back, 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 back. These lattices look strong enough, so I climbed up the outside of the building and rapped on his window. <laughs> he almost had a heart attack. And <laughs> you know, he opens the window, he lets me in, and I said, "Yeah, I, I didn't want to go through the big doors anymore like that." And then, then the upshot of that was the, the next time I came, they had an they'd actually put up a guard post. I <laughs> sure nobody climbed the outside of the building anymore. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> And now this is the classic Hanna Barbera on yeah. Cohuenga, I guess that's the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're not there anymore. Right, unfortunately, right. It got yeah. torn down. Yeah. Um, uh, when I, I worked on the new Schmoo with uh, Chuck, and then I was working full time at uh, Ruby Spears, and Ruby Spears was having problems selling shows. Mm-hmm. And Hanna-Barbera, meanwhile, had sold a lot of shows, and they needed to farm some of the work out. So uh, they had the, um, they were doing Mark and Mindy, um, Happy Days, and Laverne and Shirley in animation. Right. And <laughs> they gave the shows to uh, Ruby Spears to do, even though, even though the shows were not released under Ruby Spears' brand, we were doing the animation, writing the stories, and everything else. Yeah. So, um, you know, at first, gla- at first blush, you'd think, well, wow, you know, Mark and Mindy would be a great show to animate. You know, you can do all the crazy stuff that you can't do on a budget, on a, on a sitcom budget. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, first off, they, they gimmicked it up. They added a funny alien to travel around with them. Well, that wouldn't have been too bad. But then um, they hired somebody to be the story editor who, um, you know, this, this person, let's just put it this way. Uh, I wrote a script for them, and uh, I, had, I had Mork make an RRR joke. You know, and if you, if you remember the show, right. he would make this sound, RRR. Yeah, right. And <laughs> it was clearly an R sound because they would make puns and jokes off of it. Hey, how about a little R&R? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so I write a script, and uh, he changes it to onk, onk, onk. And I said, no, 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 it's, it's not onk, 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 it's RRR. <laughs> and he says, no, it's onk, onk, onk. And I said, no, it's, it's RRR because they, you know, I gave the example, you know, they, they make an R&R joke, you know, yeah. one little R&R. He refused to change it, and he wow. sent it to, uh, he sent it to uh, Robin Williams. And Williams was contractually obliged to do the show but he told Ruby Spears he says write all the scripts send them to me I will record them at my home one time and I will send you the tape and that's it I am not doing anything beyond the basic minimum and he recorded the show flat on his back in his bedroom (laughs) just reading into the uh, into a cassette tape recorder and, and just recorded the stuff that we sent him and, and made no effort to really, uh, you know, sell it the way that uh, he could have sold it. I mean, if you saw Aladdin, you know. Right, right, done. yeah. I was going to say it was no Aladdin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and all of these shows had, you know, they did dumb things with them, like, you know, Happy Days went into outer space. And yeah. if I remember correctly, Ron Howard and Henry Winkler had enough clout to say, no, we are not doing this. And in fact, you can't even use our likenesses on the show. So it ended up with like Potsy and you know the rest of the supporting cast going into space. <laughs> and Laverne and Shirley were in the army, yes. and they had a pig as their drill instructor. And it's you know, for heaven's sake, you know, how do you, how do you ruin up ruin just? How do you write for that? Ideas? You wrote for it. How'd you write for it? <laughs> We just, you know, man, I just, uh, you know, you turn your brain off and you just... (laughs) We had a, there was a thing, and I forget who coined the term, and it might have been Gordon Ken, it might have been Marty Pascoe, but there was a term we use at Ruby Spears called simulated humor, and simulated humor was something that took the place of an actual joke. Mm. It, it, It had the rough outline of a joke, you recognize that, that uh, okay, this part is supposed to be the setup, and this part is supposed to be the punchline. But it would be like if you were drawing a picture and you said, okay, I'm going to put a car in here, so I'm just going to draw kind of like an oval shape right now to know where the car is going to go. That's what simulated humor was. And, and the thing was, we specialized in at Ruby Spears doing simulated wow. humor because they wouldn't let us be funny. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. Now, R- Ruby Spears kind of just eventually, I guess maybe not when you were there, you know, just eventually kind of died and morphed into Hanna-Barbera also because yeah, War- Warner owns it, it all a, now, so, you know. It's, it's kind of a sad story because, um, uh, first off, the way they... Joe and Ken started, they met each other working as sound editors.
and they were then working as editors, film editors at Hanna Barbera, mm-hmm. and they couldn't make heads or tails of any of the stories that they were supposed to edit together because the stuff just didn't make sense. So they said, "Why don't you let us write one mm-hmm. so that we can, you know, have something we could edit together?" And they let them write one, and it turned out pretty good. So they very quickly moved from film editing to uh, story editing. Hmm. And they came up with the idea. uh, It wasn't called Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, when they came up with it. But they came up with the idea of Scooby-Doo. Right. And um, Fred Silverman comes into the picture again. (laughs) Um, They were were having one of these pitch sessions with the networks. And, um, you know, Joe Barbera was there, and he had all these ideas that, you know, he had shepherded through. And he had... um, if I remember the story correctly, he had like the heads of the art department and he had uh, Joe and Ken in the room just, you know, kind of to show the the talent pool he had. And he's pitching these shows at Freddie Silverman and Fred Silverman is just shooting them down one by one. (laughs) And he goes through all the pitches and Silverman shoots them all down and he's a little, you know, uh, Barbera's a little nonplussed by this and he says, well, you know, if you give us a few weeks, we'll come up with some other ideas. And Silverman turned to uh, Joe and Ken and said, what about you guys? You guys have anything you want to do? And Ken told me, he said, they knew at that moment their career at at Hanna-Barbera was over because if if the head of the network is turning to, you know, staff writers and asking for input, Joe Barbera would have them out of there in the blink of an eye. So they recognized, well, the only thing we can do is is give it our best shot, and they pitched Scooby-Doo, which Joe Barbera had refused to let him develop. (laughs) And Silverman said, great, love it, let's do it. And, you know, they do it, and it becomes a big smash hit. So the first year of Scooby-Doo, they were protected because, you know, Barbera couldn't do anything to them, couldn't get rid of them while uh, the show was a big hit. But the second year, out they went. And when they were cut loose, Silverman um, hired them as kind of like uh, freelance story editors Mm -hmm. that he would plug into shows that were having problems. And he basically, you know, Mm -hmm. he worked on Planet of the Apes. And uh, uh, they were having trouble with the Planet of the Apes show because what had happened was the guys that were doing Planet of the Apes, the previous show they had worked on was a show called Medical Center, which was one of these hospital dramas. Mm. So it's like every Planet of the Apes episode was about an ape with a medical problem. And, and we're talking about the sent, we're talking about the live action TV series. The live action, okay. yeah. Okay. And they sent they sent Joe and Ken over to, to you know get some action into this, <laughs> and and you know they couldn't do it. I mean, Joe and Ken came up with an idea very similar to what was eventually done in uh, in Die Hard. I mean, which is to say that their great idea was they, there's a, a skyscraper, an automated skyscraper that's been buried, and they dig their way into it, and, uh, you know, you're having the apes and the humans and the mutants running up and down the corridors of this otherwise pristine building, <laughs> you know, chasing one another, and, he, and their idea was we can use the 20th Century Fox Tower and shoot in there, you know, <laughs> all these action scenes. And now the producers wouldn't go for that, wouldn't pitch the idea. So, uh, you know, that's why there was only one season of Planet of the Apes. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
anyway, so uh, Silverman was clearly grooming them to be live action producers. Right. And they told him, they said that we don't want to be live action producers. We like animation. We want yeah. to produce animation. So they started doing um, specials. They did Banicula. They did uh, oh, they did another one. They did they did one called Puppies New Adventures or something like this. You know, good solid weekend special type stuff. Yeah. And then they got. Um, they started getting some series, and if, if it wasn't the first series they did, it was one of their early series, they did a thing called Rickety Rocket, which was, um, you know, like an, it was basically um, like, uh, you know, Wonder Buggy or whatever the show yeah. was, that had the, you know, the talking dune buggy, only with an all black cast. Uh, speed buggy. And you might have, <laughs> yeah. You might be able to get away with that if you have an all black writing staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which they did not have. And uh, so it, it's a, it's one of those shows that people. I remember. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I, I thought it was weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've talked to, to, to you know, fans, uh, African American you know, animation fans. And, you know, I said, do you remember this show? And they go, they first smile and they go, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, it, filling the story out. So Ruby Spears was having some modest success. Yeah. They weren't really gaining the traction that they need to have a big breakout, but they were, they were staying in existence. Right. And, um, in the early 80s, uh, Hasbro came to town, and they said, um, we're, we're going to be doing a, um, uh, a syndicated show based on um, a toy line that we're launching, and we'd like you to look at the toy line, and we'd like you to put a bid in on doing the animation for it. Um, and, and I'm condensing a lot of history here about how you know, toy shows had been banned, and then they found the back door that they could sneak toy shows in. Right. <laughs> but I, I will say that ever since I had started working in animation from my days at Filmation forward, I was known as the giant robot nut. I was the guy that was constantly championing to do a giant robot show. <laughs> so we go in to this meeting with Hasbro, and they lay out the, the Transformers right. line. <laughs> And I'm going, oh my God, this is it. This is, this is going to be huge. Yeah. And I'm saying, Joe, we have got to get involved in this project. This is going to be giant. This is going to be big. This is going to hit a nerve like nobody's business. Right. You know, and we, we just got to do it. And Joe said, no, 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 I'm passing on it because I got a better idea. I've got an idea called Turbo Chain <laughs> about a boy who turns into a car. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I lasted on Turbo Teen about 15 minutes because when they, when they got the Bible developed, Joe calls a writer's meeting. We all go in. He hands the Bible out to us, and he said, now go read it and come up with ideas. And I go in my office, and I spend about 15 minutes. I get about, like, three or four pages in. <laughs> I just throw it into the trash, and I go into Joe's office, and I say, okay, Joe, I'll work on the show, but you got to explain a few things to me first. If the kid is a car and they take his wheels off and he turns back into a kid, is he missing his hands and feet? If he's a car and they take the battery out and he turns back into a kid, is he missing his 
total of my time on, on uh, TurboTain. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Hasbro had been going around to every animation studio in town and pitching, uh, you know, Transformers to them. And they they all turned them down. Hanna Barbera ripped them off because they they were no sooner out the door than they started generating GoBot ideas. Yeah. And they actually, you know, if you if you know your animation history, they actually beat Transformers to the screen by yeah. about six months because yes. they just they just cranked out this uh, uh, GoBots thing and, and got it into theaters as fast as they could. <laughs> but well, they had a mini they had a mini series. That's what they did. It was yeah. like something. Six weeks or something, if I remember. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, they um, uh, Hasbro couldn't find anybody who would partner up with them, so they just created their own animation studio. They created Sunbow Productions, oh. and Sunbow and Marvel worked together because what the, the back door was that Marvel would do comic books right. before the toy lines were introduced, mm-hmm. and then you know if anybody criticized, oh, it's not based on the toy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what they did with He-Man, you know. But right. anyway, so when uh, uh, when that happened, I mean, Joe basically missed the chance to have his big, giant breakthrough studio. And, um, you know, as the toy-driven shows became more and more predominant, companies like Ruby Spears that relied on creating original content they couldn't compete. They couldn't buy the licenses for the shows because they were too expensive. And, you know, the original ideas that they had, the networks weren't buying them. Right. So uh, uh, eventually they just, you know, slowly, bit by bit, uh, closed down. Mm-hmm. The last time I, I talked with them as a business entity, because uh, I've met them since then, uh, you know, in other places, but. The last time I had any business dealings with them, I mean, they had, they were down to a dinky little two-room office, and, wow. uh, you know, they had all this artwork left over from their earlier days, and they were they were trying as hard as they could to convince somebody to, uh, you know, fund a show, but yeah. well, I know, they had missed their moment. You know? I know nowadays when Warner Archives puts out any of their shows, they just slap Hanna-Barbera. Ruby Spears yeah. as a name is gone, you know, and it's like yeah, a, like yeah. Thundar. You mentioned that that's a Hanna Barbera show now, and it's like it wasn't a Hanna yeah. Barbera show. <laughs> well, they got absorbed. They got bought yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, to, yeah, to to survive, they sold their library, right. and once you sell the library, it stops being yours. Right. Exactly. Um, but you, you mentioned Marvel, so you did a few things there too. I'll just mention like yeah. GI Joe and Transformers, of course. And, yeah. Uh, I did a book on DePatty Freeling. Of course, it morphed into, you know, once Frizz Freeling retired, yeah. uh, into Marvel. But how how was Marvel when you were working there? Um, you know, well, I'll tell you. Stan, Stan Lee was in charge. That, I know that. But anyway, go, <laughs> go ahead. I'll, uh, before I, I get into that, I'll tell you my Frizz Freeling story because okay. I I had at one point early on. Um, when I was on hiatus, and I guess it was when I was on hiatus from um, uh, filmation the first time, mm-hmm. I was um, I was looking for employment wherever I could, and so I took my resume over to uh, to Patty Freeling, and uh, you know dropped it off, hoping that they would call me back and talk with me and see if I could write something for them. Mm-hmm. So I went over there and I got 
lost on the way out because the building had a roughly um, the building they were in at the time had a you know the 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 main hall went all the way around but if you came out the office facing in the wrong direction you would think you were going back the way you came but you're going in a different direction instead <laughs> and I came out in the wrong direction and I'm getting deeper and deeper into the workings of the Patty Freeling and I'm <laughs> trying to find my way out and um, I, uh, I I will never forget the first thing that, that Frizz Freeling ever said because I, I was looking and I poked my head into a door and saw this little old man sitting there drawing cartoons and <laughs> he looked up at me and said what the hell do you want <laughs> 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 and I said, I'm looking for the exit. It's that way. <laughs> that's that's the sum total of my frizz free life. Well, most people I interviewed said he was Yosemite Sam. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say a, a slight uh, uh, another Ruby Spears thing. They did three shows for De Patty Freeling. It was the mm-hmm. Hound Cats, uh, Bailey's Comets, and uh, the Barclays, I believe. You know. Yes. That, yeah. That was after they left uh, Hanna Barbera before their own studio, right? You know, but right, yeah. None of those were particularly successful either. So it's like, no. anyway, um, let's see. So uh, working at Marvel on on that was that. Uh, how was that compared to the other studios? Well, was, I, I I did not work for Marvel on GI Joe and Transformers. I was working oh. for Sunbow and. Sunbow was working with Marvel. Now uh, we had okay. we had interactions with them because okay. we would write the scripts, send them over. They would send storyboards back when uh, um, you know recording sessions were done. We would try to send somebody down to supervise the recording session. We would also try to have somebody go down and supervise the final mix to make sure that the, uh, uh, the sound effects and the music and everything was right. Um, and every now and then we'd have like weird little things happen. Uh, I wrote a script for G.I. Joe where the uh, three of the dreadnoughts are standing in the middle of an airfield mm-hmm. and they're having an argument with one another and one of the dreadnoughts doesn't say anything towards except towards the end of the argument. <laughs> and I wrote in the script, um, you know, Ripper sticks his oar in the water. <laughs> and the storyboard department interpreted that literally and they had a creek running across the airstrip and he's standing there with an oar that he sticks into <laughs> it. And it's, no, it was a figure of speech, guys. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll try not to do that in the future. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, make it simple. <laughs> yeah. Captain America with a shield. Throw, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I can I can also understand. I mean, we were we were at that point. Everybody was getting a little punchy because you know you you had to turn out it, whatever your level was in the production. You had to turn out a completed thing every day. Mm-hmm. If you know the the Sunbow was in charge of the script, so every day Sunbow had to throw out of the office a completed script ready to be animated. Mm-hmm. Every day the storyboard department had to throw back a storyboard for some show that was ready to be animated. Yeah. The animators had to throw in X amount of animation every day. We had we literally when when the production was going at full pace, it would take six weeks from original conception to final 
new one every day. You right. had to have that schedule moving because if it didn't, there would be hell to pay. Yeah, because you, and, you were doing like 65 episodes instead of 17, oh yeah, yeah. 17 or 13 or whatever. It got yeah, to. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had, a, we had an expression around the office that, you know, when a script came in, you found the two things you hate, you, you fixed the two things you hated the most, you slapped a bow tie on it, and you kicked it out the door. Mm-hmm. You just did not have time to, to, to really go into nuance, polish, and fix, and things like this. True story, Steve Gerber was the, the story editor there. Mm-hmm. And one Tuesday, we're sitting around having lunch, and he, he makes a joke, says, we ought to do an episode where uh, the Joes get this mysterious phone call, and it's from a guy who identifies himself as the Viper, and he says, I'm coming over. And, you know, he keeps calling the Joes, and the Joes think it's Cobra, and in the end, it turns out, I'm the Viper. I'm here to bite the Vindos. <laughs> and, you know, we're sitting around a table, and we all laugh at this. <laughs> Friday comes. Steve <laughs> needs to have a script ready for animation on Monday morning. Yeah. And he's got nothing. And he remembers the Viper and he says, Okay, here we go. And he does the Viper. And it's like one of the, one of, I won't say it's, it's one of the most vividly remembered <laughs> episodes of the show. People either love it or hate it, but uh, so they, they remember it. You know? <laughs> they literally do that old joke. I mean, it's like, yeah, they literally do the old wow, joke. Wow, I guess I never. Well, I didn't. Okay, I got to confess. You know, by the time things like GI Joe were on the air, I would watch it. But I was, you know, a teenager getting into being an adult at that yeah. point, so I didn't watch all yeah. episodes. You know, I watched a few of them. Yeah, so I don't yeah. remember that one. But I mean, that joke wasn't on an old Tiny Tim album, but it's probably older than that. You know? Oh my goodness! Yeah, we we. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I had a friend whose motto was uh, no gag too old, no joke too shopworn. I mean, it, you know, if it worked, it worked, it goes. And, uh, I'll have know, to seek out that episode. I hope maybe it's yeah, on the internet or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, we were, you know, and, and when you're cranking this stuff out as fast as you can, at Sunbow, it was a pressure cooker environment because yeah. you'd go in in the morning and you'd be story editing other people's stuff during the day. Mm-hmm. You'd be supervising, you know, cuts and edits and recording sessions. And then you'd come home and you'd be working on your own script at night at home. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exaggerating it. At, um, you know, at one or two o'clock in the morning, we knew we could pick up the phone and call anybody else on staff. And they would be up working on their scripts at the same time. <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, we, just, we were cranking this stuff out as fast as can and we, you know, you get to the point where uh, is is can you tell me? Can you pitch an idea to me in three coherent sentences? You can. Good. You've got an assignment. <laughs> you know, we were just cranking it out. Now, did you do much more in animation after that, or were you more into comic books at that point? Um, let's see. After after. Um, um, Ruby Spears, I, I hit kind of a dry period in animation. And mm-hmm. I was going around, I was chasing work all over the place, and I, I just was not connecting. Mm-hmm. And part of it was that, um, you know, a lot of the stuff just wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was heartbreaking because the stuff that was good. 
could had no guarantee of getting on the air. I, I worked on I can't remember the title now, but I worked on a Canadian backed show that was going to be like a big um, you know, action adventure fantasy show and really solid concept, good complex characters. I mean I'm not exaggerating when I would say it would be like the level of the uh, Robotech series in terms of character complexity and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a script for him. I was immensely proud with it. I was really looking forward to working on the show when it when it went to production. And they could never close the financing on it. Mm-hmm. And so that went the way of all flesh. Um, I tried. Uh, I, I I sold a couple of scripts freelance to. Um, uh, Batman, the animated series. I sold some episodes to uh, uh, Tiny Toons. Mm-hmm. Weirdest pitch that I ever had. The strangest. This shows you how you. There's so many different ways to do cartoons. I went into Tiny Toons because I, I knew Paul Dini who was working there. Mm-hmm. I go into Tiny Toons and I said, uh, I have an idea. The Tiny Toons have to deliver a piano to the tune of the Hungarian Rhapsody. <laughs> and he says, write that up. And so I go home and I'm thinking, well, how in the world do I write it up so that it shows that it goes in tune with Hungarian Rhapsody? <laughs> so I got a recording of the Hungarian Rhapsody <clears throat> and I played it at 45 RPM instead of 33 and a third so that it would pick the pace up a bit. And then I narrated what was going to be happening in the visuals into a cassette recorder and I give the cassette recording to Paul and I say, here it is. And they gave it to the animators and the animators made dupes of it and they listened to it. Okay, all right, falling, they're always falling. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was literally narrating the cartoon visually to the music. Mm-hmm. And so there was never any words on paper put down. They just yeah, wow. animated to the music and that's, you know, was one of their better episodes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I, I came to a point in the 90s where I just got burned out on animation. There were just so many, there were, there were so many bad projects and not enough good projects, and the good projects typically were staffed up really quickly, right. and uh, you know, there, there just wasn't the freelance room that there had been. Yeah. Um, I remember at one point I was trying to, there was some monster cartoon that somebody was doing, and for the first time ever in my life I had a cross-the-board writer's block, and it was just my brain telling me, no, you're, you're not... Mm-hmm. This this is not for you. You're not going to do it. You can't write anything at all until you recognize you're not going to do this. So <laughs> I finally just you know threw in the towel on animation writing at that point. Mm-hmm. I had been doing on the side um, comics writing because mm-hmm. thanks to Steve, he had introduced me to a couple of people. I was doing work for Eclipse. I did I did a number of short stories for Eclipse. Um, we had a big, lengthy miniseries that we were planning to do that uh, because uh, Dean Mullaney just suddenly decided he didn't want to be a, a, a comic book publisher anymore. <laughs> the project evaporated. Um, I, I did work for Disney through Marvel, and I did work for Disney directly. Mm-hmm. I did... Um, uh, I, I 
worked with Steve. Steve, I'll be very frank, Steve had deadline problems. He would frequently, <laughs> you know, come up against hard deadlines and he just wasn't able to deliver anything. Mm-hmm. And he, I, I wasn't the only one, but he would ask friends to, you know, step in and help him with a project. And so he was doing She-Hulk and he basically needed to get through, you know, this story arc. And so he brought me on and I helped out with that. He was story editing um, Nightmare on Elm Street for mm-hmm. Marvel as a black and white horror comic. And uh, he was supposed to be writing the stories himself, but again, very quickly he ran into deadline problems and he said, Buzz, can you come in and, and just do a filler script for us? So I wrote a script for them and uh, uh, basically Martin Goodman had no idea what Nightmare on Elm Street was until he saw the first issue of the magazine and he said, we're not publishing this. And he sold the magazine, <laughs> even, though it, even though it sold really well. Mm-hmm. So my story was, it was drawn, but it was never, you know, published. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was having frustrating experiences like this, and uh, then a friend of mine, uh, a guy named George Carragon, had gone to New York with a couple of other buddies of mine, and they, uh, it's a very long and evolved story, they they basically pitched... uh, uh, a magazine, a, a comics magazine idea to uh, Bob Guccione at Penthouse, mm. and Guccione went for it, and they they created Penthouse Comics, okay. and and basically Penthouse Comics, the way I described it to people was, it was um, it was the equivalent of a Roger Corman movie. It was R-rated stuff. There was you know some violence, some gore, there was some nudity in it, but I mean it really wasn't hard, you know raunchy, um, you know, it wasn't the kind of stuff that you would look at and go, oh, why in the world are you working on this? You know, yeah. it was just, it was like a Roger Corman movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, he kept calling me and saying, we want you to come here and work on the show, we want you to work on it. And I was, you know, I was hitting, you know, brick walls and other things. So I really didn't want to do it, but I said, well, okay, if you can pay me X amount of money, I'll do it. And he said, great pay you X amount of money. And I said, oh, well, I wasn't anticipating that reaction. So <laughs> I go there, I go to New York, and I had found out that in the four years or so that I had not been in direct physical contact with George, he had developed quite a few problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, a very long story short, uh, he was he was a genuine dope fiend at that Ooh. point. And, and a dope fiend is different from a dope addict because a dope fiend will just use anything and everything as fast as he can. An addict might ration himself out, but, mm-hmm. but a fiend will just be piling it in as fast as he can. Wow. And uh, George was, had developed other problems as well. And I lasted at Penthouse about like 90 days. Mm. And I, I recognized... Um, because I was, I was doing like two weeks in New York and then I would come back to Los Angeles for two weeks and try to sell, you know, try to promote Penthouse Comics to animation studios, try to get an animation deal going. Mm-hmm. And so about, you know, 90 days in, I recognized, you know, <laughs> somebody is going to go to jail, to the hospital, or to the morgue, and it's 
<laughs> and so I came home, and I came back to Los Angeles, and I, I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm not going back. I'm going to call George and tell him, you know, I'm, I'm withdrawing from the company. Mm-hmm. And then I got a frantic phone call from some of the people who were still working with George in New York and said, you, you have got to come back. You are the only person that he will listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, he's gone completely around the bend. And I'm going to leave out a huge amount of stuff here because it was just really ugly, unpleasant stuff. And, you know, George had a lot of friends who wanted to help him, but he he did not want to be helped. Mm-hmm. And I went back to talk to him, and I recognized that there's a, a saying, you know, you hear people say, well, it wasn't him, it was the drugs talking. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting across the desk from him, trying to reason with him, and I recognize what I'm talking to is not George. It's yeah. some combination of chemicals flowing through his body, but right. it's not George. Mm-hmm. And I just basically said, "Look, you know, I can't, I can't stay in, stay here working under these <laughs> conditions. I'm not going to stay on. You know, I like you too much to stay on until I start despising you. I'm, I'm gone." Mm-hmm. And so I quit the company. And on my way out, I told the other guys, "I said, you know, if I were you, I would get out of here as." just cut my connections to this company as fast as you possibly can because it's mm. not going to end well. And they had been trying to set up a uh, intervention for George, but uh, one of their freelancers found out about it and, and sabotaged it because the mm. freelancer wanted to keep getting the easy money that George was doling out mm. <laughs> and uh, you know blew the whistle on the, the plan. So they, they basically left, and one of them... You know, it cost one of them $80,000 because he had invested in the company at the start and he was expecting to get it back on the end. And, uh, you know, it was either it was either walk away from eighty grand or, you know, something terrible would happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, 10 days after that, George um, uh, went to the top of the Marriott Marquis in Manhattan and dove off. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, you got that out of that was, one. <laughs> yeah, uh. yeah, and I was uh, that that affected me very badly. I mean, I I went through an even rougher period after that. Mm-hmm. We uh, we ended up declaring bankruptcy. Mm. We um, we lost the house we were living in. We moved into a smaller place. I was getting absolutely no traction anywhere. I mean, I couldn't. You know, you hear the expression "can't even get arrested in this town." Well, that was pretty much what it was like. There was, wow. there was nothing I could do that could generate any interest. Nobody wanted to hire me, mm. and uh, I literally got to a point where I just said, "Okay, God, if if this is it," because my my wife was working for UCLA, mm-hmm. and they had told her, you know, the University of California is going to be opening up. A, a new campus up north and there's a great opportunity for people to be like the first you know generation of people to move in there I mean there's you know great promotion advantages and whatnot and uh, you, you ought to take this you ought to move up north and, and take it and when she told me about this I thought well geez I can't think of any reason to stay in Los Angeles there's no reason to stay here so I, I basically said well God if, if that if this is it if this is the end of my career, just give me a sign. Just let me know, and and I'll go up north. 
used to that. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I had been recommended for the job by my friend Mark Evanier. I mean, I don't want to shortchange Mark here. Mark yeah. did a, a yeah. tremendous favor for me. But I ended up working with uh, Stan Lee. And, um, you know, there's the saying that history repeats itself. The first time it plays out as a tragedy, the second time it plays out as a farce. <laughs> well, if Penthouse Comics was the tragedy, Stanley Media was the farce. No, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, what had happened, I don't know how familiar you are, but um, after Stan had left Marvel, um, he hooked up with this guy named Peter Paul. Yeah. And he, Stan and his lawyer did not do their due diligence regarding Peter Paul, because if they had, they would have found out the guy was a twice convicted uh, drug felon and uh, you know not not somebody to get in business with yeah. but Peter Paul managed to uh, sweet talk Sam and not Sam Stan and say well you know look you're this great creator you created all this stuff for Marvel we can do it again we can create a brand new company that creates online you know product and uh, you know a new a new generation of superheroes online and we'll you know and, and he had all this very vague idea about how we were going to make money mm -hmm. there was a, a South Park episode called the underwear gnomes <laughs> and in the underwear gnomes episode these gnomes are stealing underwear and the South Park kids confront them and say why are you doing this well it's part of our three part plan part one steal the underwear part three Profit. What about part two? Eh, we're still working that out. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was pretty much Stan Lee. I mean, Stan Lee mm -hmm. Media, because we would, you know, we'd be sitting there and we'd say to Peter Paul, well, exactly how are we going to make the money? And uh, the more you asked about how we were going to make the money, the more likely you were to get fired. Yeah. So um, I had developed, uh, somebody had, said to Stan that you want to do a Christian comic book. And he looked around, and I was pretty much the only Christian that he could identify in the crowd, and he said, well, Buzz, why don't you develop one? So <laughs> I, developed, I developed this comic book called Serenity, which is about, uh, you know, I described it as Archie's with an edge. It's mm -hmm. about a, a, an unhappy girl who finds a happy ending. And I, I did this because I did my research, and I found out that the Christian market was not interested in superheroes. They wanted to see stories about real challenges to people. Mm -hmm. Stan wanted a superhero, a Christian superhero. So basically, long story short, that was, um, you know, Peter Paul's excuse to get Stan to fire me. But um, <laughs> I, I, Steve Gerber told me, because I've been talking to Steve about this, and Steve and Mark Evanier, in fact, and they both said, Stan hates confrontation. So when the time comes where it's going to be obvious that he's going to fire you, get ahead of him. Recognize, hey, look, it's not working out. You know, maybe I should move on and let you find somebody else. And he will be so happy that you're not being confrontational or angry about it. He'll give you anything you want. Hmm. And what I wanted was the Serenity characters. So basically, you know, when that moment came, I said, you know, Stan, you know, I, I, I recognize I really haven't been syncing up with this project. You know, you really need somebody. Oh, Buzz, thank you so much. I'm so glad you understand it that way. And I said, yeah, <laughs> I'll do anything, to, you know, for your severance. And I said, all I want is just the characters I created. So long story short, I got those characters, and I went on to develop them in a, a series 
basically what had happened was that Peter Paul um, had two Confederates back east who were buying and selling stock in Stan Lee Media. Mm. Small amounts of stock, but they were selling it at ever-increasing prices so that on the stock exchange, Stan Lee Media was always trading higher and higher, okay? Yeah. The, the stock exchange only says what it's trading for. It doesn't say how many shares are being traded. Right. So these two guys are selling stock, the same stock, back and forth to each other, and they're they're raising it by you know five dollars, ten dollars every time they do it. And um, Peter Paul went to Merrill Lynch and said, "Hey, look, you know, uh, Stanley stock is now worth one hundred and seventy-five dollars a share. Uh, I've got three million shares of Stanley stock. I want to borrow seven million dollars from you guys, and I'll put up my shares." Stanley stock uh, as collateral. <laughs> and they go, sure, we'll take that. And the moment he got his money, the real cash, Peter Paul called his Confederates and said, okay, you can stop dealing the, the stock. They did. And the price fell from like, <laughs> I think it was $17 a share, maybe. Maybe I was wrong when I said 170 Maybe it was $17 a share. But anyway, it fell from $17 a share down to like 12 cents. Oh, wow. And at that point, the stock exchange stopped trading it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Merrill Lynch came after Peter Paul, and he said, well, sorry, can't pay you back, but you can keep all that stock. And uh, so then the, uh, the SEC got involved. They started chasing down the people involved. And <laughs> uh, the two guys back east and one of the other people in the office were arrested and convicted. And I have to stress, Stan was a victim of this. He, yep. Stan had no part of this at all. He was, he was, people who were there when it, when the, when the, the, the hammer fell, as they say, um, they, they say he was in a state of shock. He could absolutely not believe what had happened yep. because he thought literally the day before everything was just <clears> going <throat> great guns, then overnight it collapses. Yeah. So anyway, Peter Paul um, fled the country. He had business in uh, he had a business in uh, South America, and so he flies off to Brazil. And uh, Brazil uh, doesn't have an extradition treaty with the United States, so he's in Brazil thinking he's put one over on the federal government, and he. Uh, has to take a trip to some other country in South America. He goes to the airport in Rio de Janeiro, and they arrest him because <laughs> apparently international law says um, if you're in an international airport, you are under Interpol jurisdiction, and if there's an Interpol warrant out for you, they can arrest you. Yeah. So here he is in this international airport with an Interpol warrant for him, and um, <clears throat> they arrest him. So he contacts his lawyers and his lawyers rush in and they manage to block his extradition to the United States. Mm -hmm. And he starts bopping out of the airport thinking he's put one over on Uncle Sam again and the Brazilian police stop him and they say, excuse us, where's your passport? Oh, well, I don't have one. They, they confiscated it from me. Oh, really? Well, we can't let you into Brazil then. Mm. And Peter Paul spent the next 18 months trapped in this airport. It's like that Tom Hanks movie. Yeah. He was yeah. a prisoner in the airport for 18 months until finally he recognized, you know, I, I will either die here or I go back to the United States, do my time, and get released. And he opted to come back to the U.S. And from what I understand, he did his time and he's out now. 
<laughs> but uh, that was that was my experience with uh, Stanley Media. Wow, I've known bits and pieces of that, but not so <laughs> eloquently. I'll put it that way. Wow. Well, it was it was a trip. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So we've been talking a long time here. I don't know how do yeah. we wrap, how do we wrap this up? I mean, it's like, what are you working on now, and what would you like to promote? That's usually how I end the show. Well, I've got <laughs> I've got books coming out. I've got a, a prose novel coming out soon called Poor Banished Children of Eve. I'm, I'm moving into uh, novel publishing and short story publishing. Mm-hmm. I've had a number of short stories published this year. Uh, I'm going to have a a second story in Analog Science Fiction Magazine next year called uh, Labor Saving. Relations. I'm going to be in uh, 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 a couple of anthologies coming out. Uh, Test patterns, creature features. I have a story there. This is uh, this is an anthology of short stories, all inspired by 1950s sci-fi films. Uh, there's another anthology called Off Plum, Off True Plum, and I have a story coming out in them. Um, Weekly Mystery Magazine in Canada is going to publish my story, uh, The Pirates of Point Paradiso. Mm-hmm. And um, what else? There's one more. Oh, oh, well, going back to National Lampoon, I've uh, I've had a podcast uh, contact me and get the rights to uh, do the gerunding on air. So oh, well. <laughs> that's going to be happening soon. So I'm 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 continuing to write. I'm doing much more prose stuff now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not adverse. To getting back into comics or animation, but I'm—they're going to have to. I don't, I don't want to go chasing after anything anymore. Right, if you know right. what I mean. Yeah. I will. I, I'm talking with um, uh, a well-known artist in the field. He's got a project that he's got a company interested in, and when he described the project to me, because he wanted me to come on board, I said, "Well, that's interesting because I have a project with a very similar point of view," and we compared notes and we said yeah we can meld these two projects together so hopefully something will come of that mm-hmm. okay well do, do you have a website or anything that you, people can contact sure you do. or I okay think i'm gonna let you get away without that uh, and that's <laughs> it thanks you very much no just kidding yeah. <laughs> no i'm you can find me i have a blog www.buzzdixon.com that's b-u-z-z-d-i-x-o-n all one word I can be found on Facebook. I can be found on Twitter as Buzz Dixon Writer. Mm-hmm. I can be found on Instagram as Buzz Dixon Writer. <laughs> and uh, I'm on Tumblr as well as okay. Buzz Dixon Writer. So, you know, you'll poke around, you'll find me. I'm, I'm out there. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I thank you very much for being my guest today. There's a lot of well, information there, and it was very interesting. Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm always delighted, and, and thank you very much. Okay, and we'll talk soon. Okay. All righty. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Buzz Dixon, for being my special guest. Episode number 24 will be coming soon. If you'd like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a Patreon of Fun Ideas Productions, If everyone listening just contributed $1 a month, that would be a tremendous help. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much, and have a good night.